Tiberius, Part Three of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Vettonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Vettonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Tiberius, Part Three. But above all things, he was careful to keep the public peace against robbers, burglars, and those who were disaffected to the government. He therefore increased the number of military stations throughout Italy, and formed a camp at Rome for the Praetorian cohorts, which till then had been quartered in the city. He suppressed with great severity all tumults of the people on their first breaking out, and took every precaution to prevent them. Some persons having been killed in a quarrel which happened in the theatre, he banished the leaders of the parties and the players about whom the disturbance had arisen, nor could all the entreaties of the people afterwards prevail upon him to recall them. The people of Palentia having refused to permit the removal of the corpse of a centurion of the first rank from the forum until they had extorted from his heirs a sum of money for a public exhibition of gladiators, he detached a cohort from the city, and another from the kingdom of Cotius, who, concealing the cause of their march, entered the town by different gates, with their arms suddenly displayed and trumpets sounding, and having seized the greatest part of the people and the magistrates, they were imprisoned for life. He abolished everywhere the privileges of all places of refuge. Cisicensians, having committed an outrage upon some Romans, he deprived them of the liberty they had obtained for their good services in the Mithridatic War. Disturbances from foreign enemies he quelled by his lieutenants, without ever going against them in person, nor would he even employ his lieutenants, but with much reluctance, and when it was absolutely necessary. Princes who were ill-affected towards him he kept in subjection, more by menaces and remonstrances than by force of arms. Some whom he induced to come to him by fair words and promises, he never would permit to return home, as Marabodus, the German, Traskipolis, the Thracian, and Archelaus, the Cappadocian, whose kingdom he even reduced into the form of a province. He never set foot outside the gates of Rome for two years together, from the time he assumed the supreme power, and after that period, went no farther from the city than to some of the neighboring towns his farthest excursion being to Antium, and that but very seldom, and for a few days, though he often gave out that he would visit the provinces and armies, and made preparations for it almost every year, but taking up carriages and ordering provisions for his retinue in the municipia and colonies. At last he suffered woes to be put up for his good journey and safe return, insomuch that he was called joshously by the name of Callipides, who is famous in a Greek proverb for being in a great hurry to go forward, but without ever advancing a cubit. But after the loss of his two sons, of whom Germanicus died in Syria and Drusus at Rome, he withdrew into Campania, at which time opinion and conversation were almost general that he never would return and would die soon. And both nearly turned out to be true, for indeed he never more came back to Rome, and a few days after leaving it, when he was at a villa of his called the cave, near Terracina, 
During supper a great many huge stones fell from above, which killed several of the guests and attendants, but he almost hopelessly escaped. After he had gone round Campania and dedicated the capital of Capua and a temple to Augustus at Nola, which he made the pretext of his journey, he retired to Capri, being greatly delighted with the island, because it was accessible only by a narrow beach, being on all sides surrounded with rugged cliffs, of a stupendous height, and by a deep sea. But immediately the people of Rome, being extremely clamorous for his return, on account of a disaster at Fidenae, where upwards of twenty thousand persons had been killed by the fall of the amphitheatre, during a public spectacle of gladiators, he crossed over again to the continent, and gave all people free access to him, so much the more because, at his departure from the city, he had caused it to be proclaimed, that no one should address him, and had declined admitting any persons to his presence on the journey. Returning to the island, he so far abandoned all care of the government, that he never filled up the decuriae of the knights, never changed any military tribunes or prefects, or governors of provinces, and kept Spain and Syria for several years without any consular lieutenants. He likewise suffered Armenia to be seized by the Parthians, Moesia by the Dacians and Sarmatians, and Gaul to be ravaged by the Germans, to the great disgrace, and no less danger, of the empire. But having now the advantage of privacy, and being remote from the observation of the people of Rome, he abandoned himself to all the vicious propensities which he had long but imperfectly concealed, and of which I shall here give a particular account from the beginning. While a young soldier in the camp, he was so remarkable for his excessive inclination to wine, that, for Tiberius, they called him Biberius, for Claudius, Caldius, and for Nero, Mero. And after he succeeded to the empire, and was invested with the office of reforming the morality of the people, he spent a whole night and two days together, in feasting and drinking, with Pomponius Flaccus and Lucius Piso, to one of whom he immediately gave the province of Syria, and to the other the prefecture of the city, declaring them, in his letters patent, to be very pleasant companions and friends, fit for all occasions. He made an appointment to sup with Cestius Gallus, a lewd and prodigal old fellow, who had been disgraced by Augustus, and reprimanded by himself but a few days before in the senate-house, upon condition that he should not recede in the least from his usual method of entertainment, and that they should be attended at table by naked girls. He preferred a very obscure candidate for the questorship before the most noble competitors, only for taking off, in pledging him a table, an amphora of wine at a draught. He presented Asellius Sabinus with two hundred thousand sesterces for writing a dialogue in the way of dispute betwixt the truffle and the fig-pecker, the oyster and the thrush. He likewise instituted a new office to administer to his voluptuousness, to which he appointed Titus Caesonius Priscus, a Roman knight. In his retreat at Capri he also contrived an apartment containing couches, and adapted to the secret practice of abominable lewdness, where he entertained companies of girls and catamids, and assembled from all quarters inventors of unnatural copulations, whom he called spintriae, who defiled one another in his presence, 
to inflame by the exhibition the languid appetite. He had several chambers set round with pictures and statues, in the most lascivious attitudes, and furnished with the books of elephantes, that none might want a pattern for the execution of any lewd project that was prescribed him. He likewise contrived recesses in woods and groves for the gratification of lust, where young persons of both sexes prostituted themselves in caves and hollow rocks, in the disguise of little pans and nymphs. So that he was publicly and commonly called, by an abuse of the name of the island, Caprineus. But he was still more infamous, if possible, for an abomination not fit to be mentioned or heard, much less credited. When a picture painted by Parhasius, in which the artist had represented Atalanta in the act of submitting to Meleager's lust in a most unnatural way, was bequeathed to him, with this proviso, that if the subject was offensive to him, he might receive in lieu of it a million of sesterces. He not only chose the picture, but hung it up in his bedchamber. It's also reported that, during a sacrifice, he was so captivated with the form of a youth who held a censor, that, before the religious rites were well over, he took him aside and abused him, as also a brother of his, who had been playing the flute, and soon afterwards broke the legs of both of them, for upbraiding one another with their shame. How much he was guilty of a most foul intercourse with women, even of the first quality, appeared very plainly by the death of one Malonia, who, being brought to his bed, but resolutely refusing to comply with his lust, he gave her up to the common informers. Even when she was upon her trial, he frequently called out to her and asked her, Do you repent? until she, quitting the court, went home, and stabbed herself, openly upbraiding the vile old leecher for his gross obscenity. Hence there was an allusion to him in a farce, which was acted at the next public sports, and was received with great applause, and became a common topic of ridicule, the dulled goat. He was so niggardly and covetous, that he never allowed to his attendants, in his travels and expeditions, any salary, but their diet only. Once, indeed, he treated them liberally, at the instigation of his stepfather, when, dividing them into three classes, according to their rank, he gave the first six, the second four, and the third two hundred thousand sesterces, which last class he called not friends, but Greeks. During the whole time of his government, he never erected any noble edifice, for the only things he did undertake, namely, building the temple of Augustus and restoring Pompey's theatre, he left at last, after many years, unfinished. Nor did he ever entertain the people with public spectacles, and he was seldom present at those which were given by others, lest anything of that kind should be requested of him, especially after he was obliged to give freedom to the comedian Actius. Having relieved the poverty of a few senators, to avoid further demands, he declared, that he should for the future assist none, but those who gave the senate false satisfaction as to the cause of their necessity. Upon this, most of the needy senators, from modesty and shame, declined troubling him. Amongst these was Hortalus, grandson to the celebrated orator Quintus Hortensius, who, marrying by the persuasion of Augustus, had brought up four children upon a very small estate. 
he displayed only two instances of public munificence. One was an offer to lend gratis, for three years, a hundred millions of sesterces to those who wanted to borrow, and the other, when, some large houses being burned down upon Mount Caelius, he indemnified the owners. To the former of these he was compelled by the clamors of the people, in a great scarcity of money, when he had ratified a decree of the Senate, obliging all money-lenders, to advance two-thirds of their capital on land, and the debtors to pay off at once the same proportion of their debts, and it was found insufficient to remedy the grievance. The other he did to alleviate in some degree the pressure of the times. But his benefaction to the sufferers by fire he estimated at so high a rate, that he ordered the Caelian hill to be called in future the Augustan. To the soldiery, after doubling the legacy left them by Augustus, he never gave anything except a thousand denarii a man to the Praetorian guards for not joining the party of Sianus, and some presents to the legions in Syria, because they alone had not paid reverence to the effigies of Sejanus among their standards. He seldom gave discharges to the veteran soldiers, calculating on their deaths from advanced age, and on what would be said by thus getting rid of them, in the way of rewards or pensions. Nor did he ever relieve the provinces by any act of generosity, excepting Asia, where some cities had been destroyed by an earthquake. In the course of a very short time he turned his mind to sheer robbery. It's certain that Cnaeus Lentulus, the augur, a man of vast estate, was so terrified and worried by his threats and importunities that he was obliged to make him his heir, and that Lepida, a lady of a very noble family, was condemned by him, in order to gratify Quirinus, a man of consular rank, extremely rich and childless, who had divorced her twenty years before, and now charged her with an old design to poison him. Several persons likewise, of the first distinction in Gaul, Spain, Syria, and Greece, had their estates confiscated upon such despicably trifling and shameless pretenses, that against some of them no other charge was preferred, than that they held large sums of ready money as part of their property. All the immunities, the rights of mining and of levying tolls, were taken from several cities and private persons, and Vonones, king of the Parthians, who had been driven out of his dominions by his own subjects, and fled to Antioch with a vast treasure, claiming the protection of the Roman people, his allies, was treacherously robbed of all his money, and afterwards murdered. He first manifested hatred towards his own relations in the case of his brother Drusus, betraying him by the production of a letter to himself, in which Drusus proposed that Augustus should be forced to restore the public liberty. In course of time, he shewed the same disposition with regard to the rest of his family. So far was he from performing any office of kindness or humanity to his wife, when she was banished, and by her father's order confined to one town, that he forbade her to stir out of the house, or converse with any man. He even wronged her of the dowry given her by her father, and of her yearly allowance, by a quibble of law, because Augustus had made no provision for them on her behalf in his will. Being harassed by his mother, Livia, who claimed an equal share in the government with him, he frequently avoided seeing her, and all long and private conferences with her, lest it should be thought that he was governed by her counsels, which, notwithstanding, he sometimes sought, and was in the habit of adopting. 
He was much offended at the Senate, when they proposed to add to his other titles that of the son of Livia, as well as Augustus. He therefore would not suffer her to be called the mother of her country, nor to receive any extraordinary public distinction. Nay, he frequently admonished her not to meddle with weighty affairs, and such as did not suit her sex. Especially when he found her present at a fire, which broke out near the temple of Vesta, and encouraging the people and soldiers to use their utmost exertions, as she had been used to do in the time of her husband. He afterwards proceeded to an open rupture with her, and, as is said upon this occasion, she having frequently urged him to place among the judges a person who had been made free of the city, he refused her request, unless she would allow it to be inscribed on in the roll that the appointment had been extorted from him by his mother. Enraged at this, Livia brought forth from her chapel some letters from Augustus to her, complaining of the soreness and insolence of Tiberius' temper, and these she read. So much was he offended at these letters having been kept so long, and now produced with so much bitterness against him, that some considered this incident as one of the causes of his going into seclusion, if not the principal reason for his so doing. In the whole year she lived during his retirement, he saw her but once, and that for a few hours only. When she fell sick shortly afterwards, he was quite unconcerned about visiting her in her illness, and when she died, after promising to attend her funeral, he deferred his coming for several days, so that the corpse was in a state of decay and putrefaction before the interment, and he then forbade divine honors being paid to her, pretending that he acted according to her own directions. He likewise annulled her will, and in a short time ruined all her friends and acquaintance, not even sparing those to whom, on her deathbed, she had recommended the care of her funeral, but condemning one of them, a man of equestrian rank, to the treadmill. He entertained no paternal affection either for his own son Drusus or his adopted son Germanicus. Offended at the vices of the former, who was of a loose disposition and led a dissolute life, he was not much affected at his death, but almost immediately after the funeral resumed his attention to business and prevented the courts from being longer closed. The ambassadors from the people of Ilium, coming rather late to offer their condolence, he said to them by way of banter, as if the affair had already faded from his memory, And I heartily condole with you on the loss of your renowned countryman, Hector. He so much affected to depreciate Germanicus, that he spoke of his achievements as utterly insignificant, and railed at his most glorious victories as ruinous to the state, complaining of him also to the senate for going to Alexandria, without his knowledge, upon occasion of a great and sudden famine at Rome. It was believed that he took care to have him dispatched by Cneius Piso, his lieutenant in Syria. This person was afterwards tried for the murder, and would, as was supposed, have produced his orders, had they not been contained in a private and confidential dispatch. The following words, therefore, were posted up in many places, and frequently shouted in the night, Give us back our Germanicus. This suspicion was afterwards confirmed by the barbarous treatment of his wife and children. His daughter-in-law, Agrippina, after the death of her husband, complaining upon some occasion, with more than ordinary freedom, 
he took her by the hand and addressed her in a Greek verse to this effect. My dear child, do you think yourself injured because you are not empress? Nor did he ever vouchsafe to speak to her again. Upon her refusing once at supper to taste some fruit which he presented to her, he declined inviting her to his table, pretending that she in effect charged him with a design to poison her, whereas the whole was a contrivance of his own. He was to offer the fruit, and she to be privately cautioned against eating what would infallibly cause her death. At last, having her accused of intending to flee for refuge to the statue of Augustus, or to the army, he banished her to the island of Pandataria. Upon her reviling him for it, he caused a centurion to beat out one of her eyes, and when she resolved to starve herself to death, he ordered her mouth to be forced open, and meat to be crammed down her throat. But she persisting in her resolution, and dying soon afterwards, he persecuted her memory with the basest aspersions, and persuaded the senate to put her birthday among the number of unlucky days in the calendar. He likewise took credit for not having caused her to be strangled, and her body cast upon the Gemonian steps, and suffered the decree of the senate to pass, thanking him for his clemency, and an offering of gold to be made to Jupiter Capitolinus on the occasion. He had by Germanicus three grandsons, Nero, Drusus, and Caius, and by his son Drusus I, named Tiberius. Of these, after the loss of his sons, he commended Nero and Drusus, the two eldest sons of Germanicus, to the senate, and at their being solemnly introduced into the forum, distributed money among the people. But when he found that on entering upon the new year they were included in the public vows for his own welfare, he told the senate, that such honors ought not to be conferred, but upon those who had been proved, and were of more advanced years. By thus betraying his private feelings towards them, he exposed them to all sorts of accusations, and after practicing many artifices to provoke them, to rail at and abuse him, that he might be furnished with a pretense to destroy them, he charged them with it in a letter to the senate, at the same time accusing them in the bitterest terms, the most scandalous vices. Upon their being declared enemies by the Senate, he starved them to death, Nero in the island of Ponza, and Drusus in the vaults of the Palatium. It is thought by some that Nero was driven to a voluntary death by the executioner showing him some halters and hooks, as if he had been sent to him by order of the Senate. Drusus, it is said, was so rapid with hunger that he attempted to eat the chaff with which his mattress was staffed. The relics of both were so scattered that it was with difficulty they were collected. Besides his old friends and intimate acquaintance, he required the assistance of twenty of the most eminent persons in the city, as consulars in the administration of public affairs. Out of all this number, scarcely two or three escaped the fury of his savage disposition. All the rest he destroyed upon one pretense or another, and among them Aelius Sejanus, whose fall was attended with the ruin of many others. He had advanced this minister to the highest pitch of grandeur, not so much for any real regard for him, as that by his base and sinister contrivances he might ruin the children of Germanicus, and thereby secure the succession to his own grandson by Drusus. 
He treated with no greater leniency the Greeks in his family, even those with whom he was most pleased. Having asked one Zeno, upon his using some far-fetched phrases, What uncouth dialect is that? He replied, the Doric. For this answer he banished him to Sinara, suspecting that he taunted him with his former residence at Rhodes, where the Doric dialect is spoken. It being his custom to start questions at supper, arising out of what he had been reading in the day, and finding that Seleucus, the grammarian, used to inquire of his attendants what authors he was then studying, and so came prepared for his inquiries, he first turned him out of his family, and then drove him to the extremity of laying violent hands upon himself. His cruel and sullen temper appeared when he was still a boy, which Theodorus of Gadara, his master in rhetoric, first discovered, and expressed by a very opposite simile, calling him sometimes, when he chid him, mud mixed with blood. But his disposition showed itself still more clearly on his attaining the imperial power, and even in the beginning of his administration, when he was endeavoring to gain the popular favor by affecting moderation. Upon a funeral passing by, a wag called out to the dead man, Tell Augustus that the legacies he bequeathed to the people are not yet paid. The man being brought before him, he ordered that he should receive what was due to him, and then be led to execution, that he might deliver the message to his father himself. Not long afterwards, when one Pompey, a Roman knight, persisted in his opposition to something he proposed in the Senate, he threatened to put him in prison, and told him, Of a Pompey I shall make a Pompeian of you. By a bitter kind of pun playing upon the man's name, and the ill fortune of his party. End of Tiberius, Part 3